Welcome back to the Relationship Road Trip, navigating the twists and turns of all the important relationships in your life. I'm Ben Azevedo, your host and backseat driver, here to question your directions and add some inflections. I'm Dr. Don Fernando Azevedo, clinical psychologist, executive coach, and voiceover artist, your navigator. And I'm Kim Azevedo, licensed marriage and family therapy associate, your mechanic. Take off that student driver bumper sticker, listener, because this week, you're taking us to the freeway. is by Lady Bird Johnson, former First Lady of the United States. Children are likely to live up to what you believe of them. Last week, we talked about kids from birth to age six. Today, we're going to take on the next six years, where we leave the streets of our neighborhood and get on the freeway. Roll down the windows and feel the breeze. What are some of the things that are happening for these school-age kids? School-age kids are fascinating. Their brains are just exploding, developing all kinds of neural connections all the times. Fine motor skills are really what's improving the most here. So think about that as, you know, pinch your grasp with your fingers, eye-hand coordination, being able to accomplish the things that they can imagine in their mind. Independence is growing. They like to do things on their own. Creativity is a, a big important thing for them in all phases. So creative, imaginative play to cutting out things from paper to drawing and writing and storytelling, all of those things are just exploding within them. That was definitely me as a kid. <laughs> oh, that was absolutely both of you as kids. I still can't accomplish the things that I see in my head, though. So what, what's up with that? Uh, that just is something is true of everybody, I reckon. Um, I never quite got the hand-eye coordination down. Lord knows I fall all the time. That's the foot-eye coordination. Fair. <laughs> I did get the newspaper-shaking skills when I was a child. That, you, that you was love my... to shake out the newspaper. Yes. Um, which <laughs> played laugh. into the story that I told myself. I was an adventurer. I like to shake things apart and fall over. It's a good story. <laughs> And this is true for all of us, right? What we can imagine with our minds is often just beyond what we can do with our hands. And it's that that race between what we can imagine and how we can express it that is what human growth and development is all about. And it's really important for parents to support that struggle, supporting that what you're creating is still good, despite it not quite maybe matching what's in your head. A lot of, well artists and people like that, because that's who I see as far as expressive arts therapy, struggle with that because it's not what was in my head, it's bad art. But if you encourage it at a young age of, no, this is still wonderful, and look at all of these different aspects that are true to what's in your head, it really helps with that cognitive dissonance as you're getting older. Sure. And helping children understand that life is a series of successive approximations, that we take chances, we engage in things, we learn from that engagement, and then we do it again. You know, a lot of folks, you were talking about visual arts, and one of the things that I love in some of the museum exhibits of artists is not only do they show the final masterpiece that almost everyone knows, but they show the 100 versions 
that happened before that masterpiece was actually created where they studied different aspects of the picture. And when kids are shown that even the masters have to explore the different elements of what they're creating and refine them. Every artist, musical, dance, theater, drawing, all that kind of stuff, sculpture, they practice multiple times. It's not like they create the final image the very first time. And this is the time that kids can learn to appreciate that particular aspect of creativity. And this is really cool for modeling from a parent's uh, parent's perspective of the more you model that it's okay to make mistakes, it's okay to learn from those and grow from those, the easier it is for your child to also do that. I remember as a kid, like mama and papa used to model reading all the time. And so I know I definitely read a lot and Ben read a lot. Some of my favorite memories are from Papa sitting in the hallway reading books to both of us in our room so we could fall asleep. And it was that modeling of reading is a fun activity, Mama doing art with me on that lovely blue paper from the Highlands exams, just modeling all of that for me. It was amazing for my growth as a child and developing that sense of creativity and inspiration and willingness to mess up. Half a cup of salt in the cookie that one time that Ben helped me cook was also a great learning curve on willingness to mess up. Yes, learning how not to throw up when you take a bite of it. Well, that was your job. <laughs> but that is, that's part of it. The idea is, is that you don't have to get it right the first time or really the first hundred times. It's about successive approximations. And when a kid starts to like a skill like drawing, They'll practice it on their own to develop mastery without the parent having to dog them about it. With music, Ben, that that was you. You would pursue music the way you wanted to pursue music, but not necessarily the way people wanted to train you to do music. Same thing with you, Kim. The, the thing that kids are developing in this is their storytelling ability about their own lives to themselves, describing who they are. The beginning parts of this story have already been laid down earlier, but now in this age range, they're really digging into, this is who I am and this is who I am not. These are the things that I am becoming and these are the things I'm not pursuing. I don't see as part of me. It's a winnowing process. And this storytelling comes from not only their experiences, but the way they are reflected in their parents' eyes. So if parents are describing the kid to themselves in positive, life-affirming ways that lift them up and point out their strengths, the kid gets to learn themselves that way. If the parent is always noticing the things they do wrong, the kid gets to know themselves that way. (laughs) Whichever way you do it, that's what's shaping the child's self-view. What about their social development? I, I think at this age, they're starting to have friendships, maybe a best friend, They're definitely experiencing relationships outside of the family or the home. Can you tell us some more about that? Sure. Social development here is shifting focus from the parents and siblings who have been the main playgroup for most kids to friends and different social cohorts that are happening in schools uh, and outside in the world, more in the neighborhood. It's not that schools and neighborhood haven't existed up to this point. It's that they haven't been a focus, as much of a focus for the child for most kids it really does shift at this point when they're going off to elementary school, even for homeschool kids when they're having the group activities that are built into that process. 
early in this period from 6 to 12, the kids are copying their parents behaviorally, emotionally, intellectually. It's pretty much a one-for-one correlation there. Later in the stage, they start to branch out to other folks, and they start really understanding differences, other kinds of people that are in the world, different cultures, all the rest of that kind of stuff. And awareness of gender grows in this period, figuring out themselves, how they identify in terms of gender, and how others do. Overall, though, for the intellectual, emotional, behavioral, social, all of this growth, the key thing that the child is trying to develop is a sense of competence. I can do things, and I'm good at them. They don't have to be good at everything, but they want to know that they are good at something and feel good about themselves that way. This is a question just out of my own curiosity of what do you do when, despite your child being competent and you supporting their competence, they don't feel it? So you ask them the question, what prevents you from noticing that you're really good at this? And the answer is, I don't know. So if you did know, what do you think it might be? Fair. And then the the third level of question, if they're really struggling there is, if your friend did things this well and didn't think they were doing it well, what would you say to them? So those are three levels of coaching that a parent can engage in that helps a child think for themselves. Because telling a child things doesn't really work well for long-lasting change. A child expressing things that you help them arrive at creates change that lasts for a lifetime. I think about competence mostly as an intellectual thing, you know, or a mastery of a skill, maybe a physical thing. What's an example of some of this other stuff we're talking about? Maybe emotional competence, I guess, would be developing a a good friendship or a set of friendships. That would be social competence. Social competence. Okay. What are some other examples of competence outside of the obvious ones like developing a skill or a talent? Emotional competence would be more along the lines of understanding when you're angry and what it feels like and how to calm back down. So the self-soothing. Emotional competence comes, again, from modeling with parents on how they deal with their anger, how they show their anger, and how they calm back down. Even with sadness, how parents deal with sadness or share their sadness in the family, overcoming grief or major changes, and the kid gaining competence in what do I do with these big feelings? How do I express them appropriately? What do they feel like in my body? You know, when you're angry and you tense your jaw and you clench your shoulders up and recognizing that that's a sign I'm angry and then being able to identify, well, I'm angry at this because X, Y, or Z. And that's where that competence comes in, that personal attunement. How do parents facilitate all of these things that the kids are working on? Sense of competence, their intellectual, behavioral, emotional, social development. What's the parent's role? Be there. You got to be there. You got to show up as a parent. That's absolutely true. And it doesn't have to be hours. You know, it can be in very small snippets. But you're absolutely right, Kim. You got to be there. And when you're there, you have to actually be there. So it's not just your body being in the room. Your mind has to be there. You have to be focused on the interaction with your child or the interaction with whatever you're doing while your child is watching. Because your kids are watching. It doesn't matter what you do, good, bad, or indifferent, they're watching, and they will copy. 
right in front of your mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> As a parent, if you want your child to develop competencies in emotional, physical, social, behavioral realms, then model the behaviors, the thinking, the emotion regulation, and the social skills that you would like your kid to display. What you're doing, they will do. What you're not doing, they will not do. It's really pretty straightforward. Then the next level is to coach them. When your kid comes to you with a problem, like being bullied at school or struggling with how do I get along with this particular teacher who's a little crazy. So you've got to do those things. The other part you have to do as a parent is develop and maintain appropriate limits and expectations of your kids and be really consistent. So it's better to have fewer rules that you're consistent with than a ton of rules that you sometimes enforce and sometimes don't. This seems much harder than modeling what you want your child to do. Although modeling, I can see being very hard, but like you said, it's straightforward. You know what you want them to do. You do similar or the same things. They're paying attention. You know, you do your best to limit the times that you behave outside of the range that you want your child to behave. But maintaining limits and expectations seems like a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, you signed up to be a parent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a job. It's a lovely job. I loved the job. Not like it's completely over, but certainly the intense part of it from zero to 18, that part's done. This part's a whole lot more fun. It's coaching from a distance. It is difficult to set and maintain appropriate limits. It takes energy and effort. It takes things like your mother and I used to get up before you all, which is hard because you were early morning rising kids. But we would get up before you so that we were ready when you woke up. We were already awake. We were ready to deal with you. And that was a strategy. Y'all started the day with a lot of energy. I mean, most kids do, right? In that age range? Uh, Many kids do. Some kids like to sleep late. Kids run the gamut that adults and teenagers run. I think a really important thing to consider in parenting currently is the amount of technology involved as well. I know Ben and I didn't experience too much of that growing up because it didn't exist to the extent that it does today. So getting outside to play soccer in the backyard or kickball with the neighborhood kids was a pretty traditional thing for us. But we talk about modeling and creating this self-discipline and stuff like that. As a parent, you know, how much time are you spending on technology? How much time are you getting outside? Especially the getting outside part, because I know a lot of parents struggle with closing down work, getting home and cooking dinner and not spending time out and about with the kids. So figuring out how that fits into the schedule to make sure that your kid is getting out there and doing physical activity. There was a scene in eighth grade. Sarah and I watched eighth grade last night. There's a scene where the main character who is in eighth grade is sitting at the dinner table with her father and she is looking at her phone and she has headphones on and her music is blaring and he calls out to her and she pulls one earbud out and she goes, what? And he says something, you know, innocuous about dinner or the weather or something. She's like, okay, fine. And puts the headphone back in and this scene plays out for many, many minutes. And it was making me think about, Kim, that we didn't grow up with that technology. And it was really interesting to me. I don't know how... Actually, I do know how I would address that as a parent. I would have a rule at the dinner table that no phones. For anyone. 
Right. For anyone. I wouldn't have my phone at the dinner table either. And that would be a limit. And the whole family would obey that. But it really got me thinking about, you know, when I grew up, we didn't have smartphones. I didn't have my own computer until I went to college, till the summer before I went to college. And so these weren't issues. I'm sure there were other issues to deal with. But these weren't issues that, Don, you had to deal with us having a laptop in our bedroom or access to a smartphone 24-7. And it was just incredible. And social media. Yeah. In the movie, she's clearly portraying an addiction to social media, like constantly scrolling Instagram, Twitter, stuff like that. And that's a thing I think about a lot, even as an adult. It's hard to resist those things. They're designed to be addictive. That's definitely something I think about in terms of raising children and setting boundaries there. And that's hard. Yes. And so it's about setting expectations because what was available at, at the time when you guys were growing up was television. And that was available when I was a kid, too. And when I was a kid, it was very typical for families to watch TV during dinner. And it was not appealing. Watching the news during the Vietnam era... <laughs> during dinner was just, I don't know how parents ever made that a, a good idea. <laughs> Although I remember watching it and we didn't do that either when we were able to have meals together. And that wasn't every single night, but many nights we did. The idea was we were there with one another and that was the expectation. We had set the expectation. Even things like when we went out to dinner, there was an expectation. You could bring a small toy and a book and we almost always had crayons or colored pencils but there was an expectation that you sat in your seat, you had conversation, you ordered food, you ate the food, um, you didn't run around the restaurant. And with the clear expectations and with practice, you all went, okay, this is what we do and I can do it. You may not have liked it. And there were times that you, we would go out to dinner and you guys would not be as enthusiastic, let's say, <laughs> about the experience. <laughs> But you also knew where the limits were and you knew that this was time bound. We wouldn't keep you out there forever. So there was this give and take that happened. If you want kids to, to share with you and to be honest with you, then you have to listen to them when they share. And you have to be ready to hear things that maybe you don't want to hear as a parent. Uh, but that's what facilitates the emotional growth, the social learning, the behavioral things, the being able to set clear expectations and to know how to help your child pick activities that that work well for them. And Kim, as you were pointing out, you you have to do it too, right? So if I want you to read, I have to read and you have to see me reading. If I want you to write, I have to write and I have to let you see me writing. If, if I want you to do anything else, work in the yard, that kind of stuff, you have to see me doing those kinds of activities so that you go, yeah, I guess this is the right kind of thing to do. Well, how does that play out for what if you don't like to read, but you want to encourage your child to read? What if you're not very good at reading? What if you have a challenge reading of some kind, but you want to encourage your child to read? What should you do then? Have your kid read to you. Yep. All right. Well, that was easy. Well, <laughs> but it's part of the process. Like, for instance, I, I am not a visual artist. I don't have the capacity to paint or draw or that kind of stuff. That's not... I mean, I can, I can do very modern art. <laughs> it's just not one of my skills, but I could admire the work you all would create. The cartoons that you drew, Ben, and the anime that you drew, Kim. 
but I can admire those and I can sit with you and have you describe them to me and tell me the story about why this and not that. You have to be present. I get parents are very busy and they do lots of things and they are present even for 15 minute blocks from time to time. Use that time well. Kids will get it. I also think it's really important for parents to model respect out in the public, how how you treat customer service people, your server at the restaurant, and how you respond to things that maybe don't go particularly right when you're out in public. Your kids are watching, and they're going to model that. They're going to model how you treat each other in a relationship. And that's really important to think about when you're engaging with other people. You're teaching your child how to respect authority figures. And I know Ben has voiced this challenge a couple of times, but when we were younger, it was expected that we acted like, I mean, age-appropriate young adults. We were respectful of others, but we also had our own opinion. And as long as we voiced that appropriately, we we could vocalize our own opinion. We ran into a little bit of trouble with teachers who didn't like the fact that we thought for ourselves. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was... It was great to be able to say, like, I remember when I was like, I don't like playing piano. And so I quit piano because that wasn't for me. And I was allowed to have that opinion and that track. And that just because someone like your child started something doesn't mean that's what they want to continue doing. I quit piano and started doing ballet, I think, and then flute. Mm -hmm. Ballet, then contemporary dance, and then flute. Uh, and then Color Guard, which I really fell in love with. Allowing your child to explore these things and the permission to let things go. And it's not a quitting attitude. It is a, I'm trying this and it is not for me. And respecting their choice in that. Respecting their no, which is really important in a lot of different dynamics growing up. You know, as far as if your kid's telling you no, you need to figure out why and explore what's happening for them in that. When your kid is getting upset or showing anxiety around school or social events, figuring out what's going on there because kids who have anxiety or really pulling back from social events could be experiencing a lot of peer pressure or bullying. And there's a lot of social dynamics there that you might be missing because they're not ready to tell you about it, but they will show that behavior. The other thing they may be experiencing is, is they don't have the skills to make friends. Not every child makes friends easily. They don't, not every child knows how to approach someone or engage in cooperative play. And social interaction is cooperative play. So you have to teach your kids some of those skills. Some come naturally. They do it by observation. Other kids need some help. I was cooperative until it came to the purple blocks. <laughs> those were mine. Well, so talking about peers and how they fit into this whole dynamic. I mean, my first question is, how do you teach some of those skills? And maybe that's too specific, but are there techniques? I'm sure there are techniques talking to the two of you, there's a technique for everything. But you said, you know, some of those skills come naturally to some kids and sometimes they don't. What do you do if they're not coming naturally to your kid, but maybe they came naturally to you, so you don't really know how else to teach the kid what to do? So create opportunities to watch your kid in social interactions. Play dates, go to the playground, 
do uh, pickup sports. A lot of playgrounds have basketball or other kinds of things that kids can play. Watch your child interact and notice what they do well and what they don't do well. First thing you want to do is gather data. What's going on for my kid around making friends? How do they do it? How do they not do it? And then model the behavior. You might even do role plays. So kid comes back, they were on the playground, they had a hard time interacting with folks. You might role play different ways to approach other kids so that the child can practice with you where it's safe. That's probably the easiest way. And, and then also pay attention to things like, so in the 6 to 12 range, in the early years, 6 to 8 roughly, same gender friends are more typical than cross-gender friends. And I know I'm speaking very binary, and Kim, you can correct me with the other kinds of stuff, but this is from what development shows. What we're looking for is people who are more like us than different, because that's more comfortable socially for the kid as they're beginning to explore differences. So they're probably also looking for other kids who have similar interests and things that aren't just gender as well. That's correct. You know, if they're athletically inclined, they're probably hanging out with other kids who are interested in sports or athletic activities. If they're maybe showing an early interest in music, they're probably seeking out other kids who have musical affinity. That is, that is correct. And affinity for uh, genre of movies or books and just all kinds of things, right? The, the idea there being is I need to connect and I'm developing the competency of connecting. And out of that often comes a best friend someone with whom we share many similar traits. And some people create best friends in this age group that last them an entire lifetime. My oldest sister is one of those people who has friends you know, for 60 years. By the middle of this stage, though, between 6 and 12, around 8 and 10, there's a shift where differences don't become as dangerous. They become actually intriguing. I want to understand people who are different than I am different cultures, different races, ethnicities, food selections, and different genders. And the beginnings of understanding how I am by being different than others becomes part of the identity process that's happening in this, this realm. So if you're an artistic kind of kid and not particularly athletic, you'll notice the difference between your group and the athletic group. Most kids will be a member of some group because if you're not a member of some group and you start to drift to the fringe, you either become the target of bullying or you become a bully yourself. That's what happens to kids who are not part of the social circles anywhere in like a school system. I mean, I, it happens to kids in the social circles as well, but it definitely happens disproportionately to the kids kind of out on the fringes. I think it's important during this period of time as kids start to explore this difference and how do I interplay with the difference that you as parents encourage the differences and awareness of what those differences mean and that your family is not the only right family in the world. The things you do are what you grew up with and the community you developed, but other families and other friends do things differently and that's really okay. I remember having like Weird experiences going to friends' houses where having a friend over was a very scheduled event. You had to plan it out several weeks in advance and all of this stuff. And when I had friends over to the house, it was kind of like, hey, 
can this person come over? And as long as we weren't doing too much, it was like, yeah, come on over. Having neighborhood kids over in the backyard was normal, but other families didn't adjust that well, weren't as flexible. And I remember that feeling really strange to me as a kid. It's important to address the the race and ethnicity differences because there's a lot of undereducation around it. You know, what it means to be different races in America, interacting with them and what's modeled in the news versus healthy and appropriate engagement with other groups of people from who you are as a family. And, and it's not just race. It's, it's also gender, socioeconomic class. All of the things that we create differences with as we label people in different ways. If parents can help their children understand there are all kinds of folks and all kinds of wonderful people in all of those groups, and there are all kinds of miserable people in all of those groups, acceptance and, and inclusion are an important part to help a child begin to think about. And in the end, it's the child's choice about how they're going to live. But unless they get education uh, and some experience in doing these things, they don't have the choice. That's an important element. This age range from 6 to 12 is an important foundation stone for helping kids understand that they actually get to choose their life. They get to choose the outcomes that happen based on how they respond to the world around them. And when you help a kid synthesize the information that's coming in at them all the time and make choices about how they want to live in the world based on values, based on integrity, the kid gets that for life. This is the most important thing that parents can do. And it's not just in this age range. It started at birth and it will go on throughout their entire life for as long as a parent is alive. And even after the parent is dead, that influence is still there for kids. So help your kids synthesize the information that happens to them, the social bullying if it happens or the social wonderful things that happen and help them make good decisions on their own because they're going to make the decisions anyway. Parents hate this part. Kids make decisions whether we like them to or not. How do parents help with that? What are some ways, what are some specifics for how to help kids learn that they can make these choices and to navigate these friendships that they're developing, all this growth that's happening from 6 to 12? Parallel gentle questioning, Papa's favorite phrase, help me understand. It's being parallel with the kid and their experience. So when they come home and they're upset about something, you know, help me understand what's going on and allowing the child to sort through their own thoughts, their own choices, their own opinions, their emotions, giving them a chance to look at how do they want to solve the problem. And after that, adjusting, you know, maybe their solution of punching someone in the face is not the best solution. I was going to say, what if they're wrong? It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to get it wrong. We don't have to get it right all the time. Hmm. So it's that gentle influence after they've voiced, you know, what their thoughts are of being like, well, maybe punching someone in the face is not the best decision here. What are some other things that we could think about and processing through? We could punch them somewhere else. <laughs> so... That's true, but let's try not to punch people. Well, you know, the challenge becomes helping the child understand why are you going to that decision? What's prompting you to choose that? 
they may have a good rationale. I can't think of one, but they might have a good rationale. Their face is ugly. <laughs> but the, the, the challenge, though, is as the kid begins to think about it and they let go of their very first responses, which is often very confrontational, very conflict-oriented, the kid then begins to understand, oh, I have these other choices, too. And although they can't go back and change what's already happened, they can have this now in the back of their mind the next time this happens. And that's the reason we don't have to get it right all the time, because life presents us these problems over and over and over again. So we have several opportunities to refine our response, to get to the response that really is in integrity with our values and who we wish to become. Well, all right. There's a lot going on for this range of kiddos, huh? This week, we talked about the continued physical, mental, emotional, social development of 6 to 12-year-olds and the ways that parents can help facilitate that growth and model what they want their children to be in the world and really help their kids develop into full-fledged human beings. Then we dove into friendships and their influence and the ways that kids in this age range really start to experience things outside of their immediate home and family and how parents can kind of help synthesize that information as well. Hopefully those drivers out there with kids can get something useful out of this. And if any of y'all have questions, we're always here for you at questions at afpsych.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. To give you a little peek behind the curtain, we currently have one five-star review on iTunes. So if even a single listener leaves us another, you'll have doubled our score. We'll be back next week. And until then, enjoy the drive, y'all. Thank you for listening to The Relationship Road Trip. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we want to know what you think. So write to us at questions at afpsych.com. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or subscribing with your favorite podcast app. You can find more episodes of the show at relationshiproadtrip.com or wherever you download podcasts. The Relationship Road Trip comes out every Wednesday at 7 a.m., so don't forget to tune in next week. The Relationship Road Trip is brought to you by Azevedo Family Psychology, where they are dedicated to helping you create a life worth celebrating. You can learn more about their services at azevedofamilypsychology.com. This podcast is produced by Bear Cave Audio. Bear Cave Audio provides a range of audio services, from original composition to podcast recording and editing. To learn more, go to bearcaveaudio.com or email ben at bearcaveaudio.com. Until we meet again, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. And may the sun shine warm upon your face. Mm-hmm.